Welcome to Arts Express. This is Prairie Miller and on the show. The former member of the CIA testified in support of Seymour Hersh's article on the United States bombing Nord Stream pipeline. If it is proven that the United States bombed the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, as has been asserted by Seymour Hersh and his article, will you call for the United States to acknowledge and admit that that was an act of war against Germany and Russia? And I'm asking this because this may be the only way to prevent the rest of us from being killed in a thermonuclear war. And I don't want to be fried. Don't you think the media should be reporting on whether or not this is true? And don't you think you should be inquiring into whether or not this is true? Well, thank you for the question. Uh, one, I've got no information to suggest uh, that the United States was involved in bombing the Nord Stream pipeline. Because he would have, he, you would have, you would have been, you weren't briefed on it. Sir, sir, you got your chance to ask a question. You weren't given information because he explicitly says you weren't briefed on it. Shouldn't you inquire? So here's what I'll say about, I think, you know, President Biden's leadership generally as it relates to and Russia. We committed an act of war. What are you doing to respond to that? We have to hold Biden accountable. So Listen, you're from Brooklyn, right? You know when to call bull when you sure. see it. So sure. do I. Gonna, this is bull right now. And I see what's Thank happening you. right now. That does not silence me. So, you can hear me right now. I want you to say something about the bombing because we're all going to die from a nuclear war right now unless you stop it and you at least put an inquire into whether or not it's true. This war in Ukraine is going to leave us all dead. So what are you going to do? Because you need to inquire. Here's I'm a New Yorker too. Here's what I'll say. Say it. We're going to continue to stand with the Ukrainian people. That's bull. Do war. not do that. You will end us all in dead. In this war against We Vladimir need Putin. peace. We need talks. Because Why are you sabotaging just, talks? Do not, not put your hands on me. We need Ukraine peace talks. I am Russia. not going to take this. It's a we need peace now. talks. Between it's a you battle are between leaving. Listen. Democracy Did you even read the allegations? It's a no. battle between how about, truth how about accountability? And not airheadedness. It's a battle between okay. tyranny and freedom. And democracy, okay. truth, and freedom will not prevail. Diplomacy, not destruction. How about that? I want to ask you to join me. You goddamn airhead, you're going to kill us all. I don't want to die in a goddamn nuclear war. And, and that was anti-war protester Jose Vega making righteous noise at a New York City University propaganda presentation by Brooklyn Congressman, House Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries, up at the podium promoting U.S. war propaganda for the ongoing conflict in Ukraine. And in what is the growing disruption movement against hawk politicians, Said Vega, quote, you've got to make some noise when the people on the podium are running their mouths and lying to us. And this is a preview in a forthcoming show in an Arts Express Prime Scenes episode. But now, opening Women's History Month. We are proud of having been officers of the finest corps of the Third Reich. And if I were born again, I would do exactly what I did. I'm here of my own free will. Never give it up! I haven't given up! Are you afraid? And those were scenes from the 1975 Liana Cavani-directed drama The Night Porter, in which actress Charlotte Rampling portrays a concentration camp inmate who, in a role reversal, dominates the Nazi commander, played by the late iconic Dirk Bogart, in a bizarre S&M relationship. No stranger to controversial roles throughout her career, including Visconti's The Damned, Rampling is our guest on the show, calling him from Paris to talk about her latest portrayal in Juniper as a bitter, alcoholic New Zealand grandmother 
and PTSD-afflicted war correspondent and based in part on Hemingway World War II comrade-in-arms, Martha Gellhorn, and torn by that universal dilemma afflicting women between motherhood and an identity out in the world. Hello. Hello and welcome. Okay. What was it about Juniper, this story, and your character, Ruth, that drew you in? Well, well she, I sort of need to have a kind of relationship that, that, um, that I feel quite instinctively and quite rapidly with a character. And if within the story, the whole thing seems to, seems to hang together in a way in storytelling, you know, in to- storytelling terms, then it becomes quite, it becomes quite obvious. But, you know, the spirit of the person is there, and then I, I just like to join with those kind of women, you know, those kind of women who, have, who really interest me. Yeah. Now, Juniper is unique and commendable in the complex portrayal of a woman whose bitterness and alcoholism, most commonly seen based on a relationship with a man, dependence or rejection by a man, but rather political in large part, the horrors she's seen in the world as a war correspondent. What did it mean to you to play such a woman in that regard? Well, I think there's, there's a responsibility from, you know, from a human point of view when you take on roles that, that, that where people are engaged in particular activities that they've needed to use and they've used, needed to use substances to actually get through the, uh, the, the stress of these, of these, of these um, activities. And I know a lot of, I mean, I've known war reporters before in my time. They've always really interested me because how, you know, how can actually somebody really hold, you know, hold that kind of tension for so long and be out there and be waiting and then suddenly be in action and there's, there's so much, there's, there's, a, there's a whole lot sort of unknown out there when you go in those situations. And so I, I find that very moving and I find that there's a form of dedication to being able to, you know, report back with news that other people will never know about unless, you're, unless you have been there. And what can you say about how the director saw you as the ideal choice for Ruth and what transpired when he traveled to Paris to find you and to convince you to portray Ruth? The, uh, the, when he came over, because, you know, no problem, on get on, get on a plane and come over. 24 hours later, he arrived with his, with his young producer. And because what I need to talk about was, was um, the fact that I found that she was too old, the woman. I mean, I'm not in my 80s, I'm in my 70s. And I said to him, look, I, you know, I've never played, some, I don't want to play somebody who's not within, within an easy age group, of, which is close to my own. Um, and I don't know what ages are going to be like, you know. I mean, I know every decade is a little bit different, but I don't know what 80s is going to be like. So I'd like her to be in, in her 70s so, so that everything that she will be doing, I will actually be beside her doing it too. Now, George Ferrier, who portrays your grandson, Sam, wrote a letter to you to build a connection and chemistry between the two of you. What can you say about what flourished between you regarding that letter? I think a lot, because to do that meant that he really, um, he really was thinking uh, how, how to, how to, how to just, just connect up with me before we actually met. And nowadays, it seems that, you know, Young people perhaps don't go through the writing process so much, but in a certain way, New Zealand is quite an old-fashioned country, mm. and um, I mean it's very British. It was was discovered by the Scots and the Brits. Most of the Brits came. The first settlers were, were British, so it's still a still a, it's, it still feels like a quite you know like like a like a British out out out. Uh, what how would you say a sort of backwater? I wouldn't say backwater. That's not quite the right mm. word. I would use. But anyway, so the, so the letter was very much um, was uh, was very powerful, and I wrote back in the same way. Because if he, if he was offering up uh, himself in that way and opening out in that way, it, it's a wonderful invitation. Because that's you know I don't I don't think I would have thought probably of writing to him, but I would certainly knew that I'd have a lot of time with him anyway, so that we talk about a lot of things if he wanted to, but maybe he didn't want to. I don't like to impose on people. Mm. I think people, younger people, need need to make up their own mind, sort of what yeah. what they need from an older actor. Mm. 
be able to. I, I don't know. Anyway, but, it, but with him, it was it was done in a way that was unusual and and very powerful. And um, and we became really we were incredible partners actually because with the filming being his first big film was was it's very moving, very moving. And I was able to I was able to yeah be beside him a lot of the time and and help. And that I know. Was, you, you just need to you just need to say very very small things to to young people who don't know about acting because who knows about acting is is an experience that you that you'll go through over the years so you start out and the, but there'll be just little things that you need because I had that from Dirk Bogart when I was filming on the night Porsche I remember there's just two or three little few things he'd tell me and that's the kind of things that last forever in terms of the magic of of how to portray how to portray yourself through through the screen acting. And what sort of things did he tell you? He told me things about energy a lot of the time. Yeah. Because you get very tired filming. Filming is a marathon. And you're going uh-huh. over scenes and doing them again and again. And then it has to go wrong. And you have to wait. And then you have to pick up again and do it again. And you just, in the end, you just like, I can't do this anymore. Mm. And he says, you can never say that. You can never, ever say that. You have to train yourself to be able to go further and further and further until there's, you know, until unless somebody's being just ridiculous and not stopping because some directors mm. want too many takes and you just say, look, I cannot do it anymore. But the whole thing about the endurance of it is very, it's, it's very important to, 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 to know about that. And also about the, um, which I told George, is about the not trying. It's got to be a flow. You cannot be thinking of what you're doing. You have to flow with the feeling. You can you can prepare and then you have to get your preparation and you just have to do it as if you would do it in real life and you have to trust yourself that that you you know what you're supposed to be doing and then you just do it without knowing what you're doing if you can understand what I mean. Yeah. And with its themes of anger, depression, alcoholism, suicide, and strained relations across generations, what do you feel this film about the past speaks to struggling in life today? And this historical moment in time. I think it's, it's always been the same, quite honestly. It's just that we're, we're perhaps a little bit more open, but does that mean that our relationships are any better? I don't know. Perhaps do we say more? Do we know more about psychology and about human relationships? Yes, probably we do. But I think human relationships within families have, have always been very much about the time that we live in and how much we know of, of the time that we're living in because what happens in the past we don't know about and what happens in the future we don't know about. We only know about the time we're living in, really, truly. The, uh, the rest is just is just supposition. Oh, it was like that. Okay, it's important to know because history is incredibly important. But we don't know what it was actually like, how to live it. And would you say you relate to your character, Ruth, in terms of how women struggle for an identity and yourself as both an actress and a mother and having an identity in the world? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I think every every woman will have that. Even women that that don't necessarily work, they'll always think perhaps before, like in my in my mother's time, when she was a, she didn't work, but she also had you know she had the longing of not feeling that she was actually experiencing perhaps enough out in the world and being useful in the world perhaps. So we're always feeling that you know that 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 perhaps someone is suffering because of how we are being, and with our children, it's very much that. I mean, I was. I, st- I started being an actor very young, mm. and then my children, you know, would be, you know, I'd have to leave them when I got filming, leave them with nannies, and, and, and we moved, I moved house quite a lot, so I thought I was uprooting them, and I was being uprooted because I was in a military life. Yeah, there's always, we, we, we constantly feel we're not doing good enough, and, uh, but we also need to, to make sure that we are doing things for ourselves as well. And then we start to feel even guilty a bit about that because is it too much for ourselves? We know that we also do need that and they'll have to understand. It's a constant, it's a constant, constant um, questioning, I think, all through our lifetimes of, of how we balance these things out. And please describe your relationship with the filmmaker, Matthew Saville, in bringing your character to life and based on his own personal story with his grandmother. Well, his grandmother was in her 80s, so I said I'd much prefer me to be in my 70s mm-hmm. because that's that's what I know. I don't know how to be in my 80s. I mean, I can I can sort of imagine myself younger, but to imagine myself older, I'm not sure quite how I do it. I don't think I'd want to. I said I've got time for that when I'm 80. <laughs> 
but uh, so that was fine. We just made her a bit younger, and so that so I so I knew that I was sort of hand in hand with a with a with a relationship because that's what actually acting is about. You you have to have a relationship with this other you because there's going to be a lot of you in that. Of course, there is. Um, uh, it's just you, you know, in a in in a different in a, in a different, slightly different transformation in terms of maybe time, in terms of what you know, what what your background has been and what your history is. So we talked we talked a lot about a lot about how this woman could be because he's he's a forty year old um, director from New Zealand and 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 the although his his grandmother the scenes with his grandmother were were, were there. But the writing of them needed to be sort of slightly closer to to how how it would actually be as, as far as I was concerned. It's like slightly more lived in, slightly less less scenarized, less script script wise scripted. And is there anyone among your many films that stands out for you that you most cherished creatively? Um. There are a few, really. Yeah. Uh, not just one. There are a few that really. But really, I feel that if I, if I just you know, was to go, if they were just those were just the films I'd made, that would be enough, you know. Sort of starting really from the Damned and Night Porter, and then going on to the French films like the, the Ozon Pictures, Boulevard, and and uh, Swimming Pool, and uh, going on to another film I made called Maximum Amour, and then Forty Five Years, and certainly one. It's it's actually films that are, are quite are quite small films, but they they resonated really deeply with me. Mm. So so they stay with me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then there are other ones that are that other people like perhaps better. And that, uh, but it, it doesn't really matter as long as you feel that you've met you've met directors and you've met a character and you've met a story that actually you would really want to be in if you hadn't been in it. <laughs> <laughs> And what can you say about your upcoming portrayal of Emma Darwin, the wife of Charles Darwin in The Species, and what inspired you to portray her? Well, I haven't done that. That that's a project that hasn't been filmed oh. yet. It's all it was camp, it was it was slowed down last year and it's supposedly going this year, but I don't know whether it is. They say in October now. It's, oh. a, it's a yeah, it's a beautiful script. It's something that's that I hope to be doing later in the year. Yep. Oh. About October, I think. And what about Dune Part 2 and your portrayal of Reverend Mother and a film described as about, quote, a spice that changes people into travelers, mystics, and madmen? <laughs> so, would you like, so would you like to take a ride with us and become one of those? Take your pick. The choice is yours. Yeah. No, we've, done, we've done the second one, so we'll see what that comes out, I think, in October. So we'll see We'll see how people like that one. I don't. It, the books are very long, so it could go on for quite a long time. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And any last word about Juniper? Juniper is a film that I that I really made the effort to go to New Zealand to do. I I, I know New Zealand because my first husband was a New Zealander, so I have a son who's half a New Zealander, and I know the country well because of that. But I was one. I but when I got the offer from this film, I was I was just I'd just come off something quite tiring. And I thought, oh no, I can't go all that way. But the, but the story really was very compelling. There was something very powerfully compelling in this story. It's a very, I mean, it's a story that you probably know what's going to be happening, you know, from the beginning because it's not a complicated story. But the way he told it in his in his script was. I mean, I was, I, you know, I was, I was certainly shedding a tear at the end. I thought, ah, I thought yeah. he brought his script beautifully right through until the end. So I, so I'm, I'm, I'm very proud to, to be uh, able to talk to people about it, and I'm very glad that, that people are liking this film because I think it is, I think it's a very beautiful piece of work about a very simple subject which actually concerns us all. These types of, these types of subjects do resonate, I think, with so many people. And one last question. When Charlotte Rampling looks in the mirror, what does she see? Now, <laughs> I see somebody who's not, who's not doing too badly. <laughs> <laughs> I look at my face, I, I, I probably have a nice mirror, you know, quite with a nice pretty lighting. I mean, you don't, like, you don't look great in, 
very harsh lighting. But I but I smile at myself, which I didn't used to do. So I must must be yeah, must be getting perhaps a little bit a little, a little bit nicer about myself. You know, because mm-hmm. we beat ourselves up, and then suddenly we say, well, hey, come on, let's give ourselves a break. <laughs> Okay, thank you so much, Charlotte Rampling, for joining us on the show from Paris. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye-bye for now. And Juniper is out now in release. Once we were weak, We stand tall, millions of citizens heeding the call, demanding our freedom, the birthright of all. The Arab Spring turns to the American Fall. We're the 99 and we'll never forgive. We'll never forget how you've made us live. Expect us at your door. Prepare to defend. The reign of the moneyed and privileged now ends. Once we were few, now we grow by the hour. The lamb sheds its mask. The emperor cowers. The wolf bears her teeth, her hunger devours the gleaming skyscrapers, the ivory towers. We're the 99 and we'll never forgive. We'll never forget how you've made us live. Expect us at your door. Prepare to defend. The world of the moneyed and privileged now ends. There's no job creators, a trickle-down bust. And time's running out for your greed and your lust. You've earned no respect and squandered our trust. From this day forward, you must expect us. We're the 99 and we'll never forgive. We'll never forget how you've made us live. Expect us at your door. Prepare to defend. The reign of the moneyed and privileged. No. Thank you, Billy Allen, reading Expect Us. And now on Arts Express. Hi, this is Jack Shalom, and since it's March, that can only mean one thing. It's the month to celebrate the birthdays of two of our favorite March-born radio comedians, the great Bob Elliott and Ray Goulding, better known as Bob and Ray. We thought it would be fun to produce our own Bob and Ray-like radio program segment, so join me and my longtime friend Rick Tooman as we take to the airwaves in our Bob and Ray homage, written especially for Arts Express. And now, from approximately coast to coast, it's Jack and Rick bringing you the news and views that are so needed in today's crowded information landscape. Jack and Rick, brought to you by Fostics Friendly Soap, the soap bar that sings to you in the bathtub. What's up first, Jack? Well, Rick, what with talk of balloons in the air recently, we're going to take our listeners now to crack reporter Carter Boone on location at the Mohangala Party Supplies and Explosives Factory in downtown Mohangala with an important interview. Uh, come in, Carter. 
Arter Boone here, and I'm here on location at the Mohangala Party Supplies and Explosive Factory in downtown Mohangala with a fast-breaking balloon story. I'm speaking with Assistant Vice President of Balloon Affairs, Joseph T. Benzine, to get the lowdown on their top-of-the-line fast-rising balloons. Hello, Mr. Benzine. Uh, hello, Mr. Boone. It's a pleasure to be speaking we have your top 40 audio station uh, on here at all times. Uh, the guys on the plant floor just love it and really groove to it. Well, I don't know if I would call us top 40, but Mr. Benzine, it's kind of an unusual business you do here. Uh, uh, it's nothing uh, unusual about balloons. <laughs> yes, but you also sell explosives. Uh, well, uh, nothing unusual about explosives. Yes, but the combination of balloons and explosives. Oh, that. Well, I guess you might say <laughs> that was a happy accident. You see, my late brother Carmine had an explosive business, and I always looked up to him, so when he told me that he had some extra warehouse space, why, I just naturally moved my balloon business into the warehouse with the explosives. So you were already into the balloon business? Oh, yeah. 30-odd years of experience. How about I tell you, standing out on that corner there in the park for 30 years selling balloons, it starts to get old after a while. In Mahangala, in the winter, is no treat. You were happy to move indoors? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. There's just so much of children tugging on your coat for you to make another balloon doggy that a man can take. It's <laughs> much better in the warehouse where no one can see you. I see as we're walking on the factory floor here, you've got quite a variety of balloons here. What would this one be? Oh, that's uh, a real beauty you got there. Now that, that's a balloon twisted into the shape of the 15th U.S. president, uh, James Buchanan. You, you can tell by the eyebrows. Is that a big seller? Oh, yeah, you, you wouldn't believe it. You know, the Kiwanis Club and the Knights of Pythias gatherings on the 4th of July, it's quite patriotic. <laughs> and any time there's a Buchanan family gathering, well, we unload quite a few. And what would this one be? Well, this one's not inflated, Carter, but, but when it is, you'll see it's an extra-large balloon twisted into a full-color representation of the 1960s rock band strawberry alarm clock. I don't imagine you get much call for that nowadays. Well, you know, that's that's uh, that's kind of true. Uh, for some reason, we just haven't sold any of these for about, oh, uh, we're going on about uh, six decades now, I'd say. Uh, I don't know why. Uh, just one of those things, I guess. Uh, but I get a great price on them from overseas, so I keep stocking them. Now, I understand you're developing applications for the balloons for the military? Yes, yes, that's true. Uh, we've got surveillance balloons and mm. balloons that are capable of firing anti-missile ammunition at the enemy. We're very excited about what we call our G.I. Joe line of balloons. I, I could show them to you in action if you like. Oh, that would be wonderful. Okay, well, let's just uh, move over here to the, to the test area here. Just a note for the listeners. We're now in a large cavernous space with a ceiling of some, uh, oh, I would say, nigh-high 35 feet or so. Well, that's actually uh, 37 feet and 2 inches, Carter, at its uh, highest point. It's certainly high. To accommodate the balloon flights, I suppose. I imagine those balloons would look quite majestic even here in the test area, floating up to the top of this cathedral-like ceiling. Well, uh, I wouldn't uh, actually know about that, uh, Carter. You see, uh, we've uh, never actually had a balloon take off from the ground <laughs> for some crazy reason, every time we fill the balloons with hydrogen and light a fire under them to get them going, uh, the darn things explode. You fill them up with hydrogen? Why in the name of all that is holy would you do that? Well, well to make them rise, of course. But isn't hydrogen flammable? 
It is? Oh, kidding! <laughs> I wondered why the balloons kept popping. It's a highly flammable gas. Now, isn't that the darndest thing? I wondered what those Zeppelin folks were trying to tell me. C can't you use helium? Helium? You mean like we have in those tanks in the corner there piled up for the last uh, 50 years? Well, yes, helium's not flammable. You don't say. <laughs> well, I'll be jiggered. <laughs> yeah, you learn something new every day in this business. That's what all the party balloons are filled with. Oh, I wondered what those tanks were good for. Well, I gotta try that sometime. Gee, thanks. And this is Carter Boone, live from the Mohangala Party Supplies and Explosive Factory, with a fast-breaking balloon story. Well, Rick, I'm certainly glad that crack reporter Carter Boone was able to straighten that out and rise to the occasion. Unlike the Mohangala balloons. And now, Jack and Rick fans, a special announcement. Girls, boys, and puzzle fans, Jack and Rick, are calling all girls, boys, and puzzle fans. If you love codes and ciphers, Jack and Rick have a special offer for you involving cryptocurrency. It's our Jack and Rick brand of cryptocurrency that will have your enemies scratching their heads trying to figure out how anyone could possibly use the stuff to actually buy things. It's Jack and Rick's Quasi Crypto, and it comes complete with decoder ring and secret codebook to decrypt encrypted cryptocurrency. Look for it in your next purchase of a box of Cap'n Crunch cereal. Not available where Monopoly money is in use, or in boxes of Cap'n Crunch Crunch Berries. And speaking of money, Jack, I understand our other veteran newsman on the scene, Ben Willis, has an important banking story. So let's cut to a report from Ben live on the scene somewhere in the Midwest. Hello, Ben. Ben Willis, I'm here on location in the Our Lady of the Divine Sorrow shopping mall in Greater Ashtabula, Ohio, to interview Parker Q. McEllington, who, as I understand, is the world's fastest fixer of bank ATM machines. I don't actually fix ATMs, Ben. I operate them. You see, when they break down, I climb inside and work them manually. I would imagine that would be somewhat painful, wouldn't it? Oh, I've been doing it for so long now, I'm used to it. This particular machine I'm in right now, I've been working inside of it since the great blizzard of Ot-11. The hundred-dollar bills are not so bad. But it's pushing out those $20 bills that can hurt, bending you a bit out of shape, sticking the hand up the old chute there. You gotta make a left turn on the way back from the 20s bill holder to the dispenser there, while avoiding the central camshaft and cooling fan, and that's a real bone twister. Hmm, I could imagine. Now, as the world's fastest fixer of ATM machines, how fast... Can you actually dispense a uh, customer's money? Well, we had John up in accounting bring a stopwatch down here, and he clocked me at about 20 bills an hour. 20 bills an hour? That doesn't seem particularly fast for someone who's billed as the fastest fixer of bank ATM machines. Well, Ben, remember, what I'm doing is all manual. The other guys cheat. Cheat? Yes, they use battery-powered screwdrivers, circuit boards, motors, those kinds of things. But you're strictly manual. Strictly manual. Do you mind if I ask, what if the screen goes completely out of whack? Kaplooey. I have run into that, Ben. There's really nothing I can do about that. I just make up the numbers. Fifty, seventy-five, eighty-eight dollars and ninety-nine cents. Whatever I think might make sense for that particular customer. Uh, so you have access to data for each customer? No, not really. See, I, I just kind of peek through the little hole in the bank card slot. Well, I, I don't imagine you can get much of a view from there. Well, no, but I can see enough of the customer's shoes 
and then I make my judgment accordingly. Now, how do you fit yourself into such a small place? That's an interesting story. My parents were carny people. Oh, they were contortionists. No, they sold popcorn. But what I would chase the stray pieces of popcorn under the lion's cage and so on, <laughs> I got pretty good at squeezing myself under there when they'd come after me for the popcorn I had stolen. The funny thing is the feller before me <laughs> here actually did know how to fix these things, but he asked for a raise and management fired him. So you filled in? I thought it was my company duty. Otherwise, who knows what would happen? Well, thank you, Parker Q. McEllington, world's fastest fixer of bank ATM machines. You're welcome. And would you like a paper receipt, or should we email or snail mail that to you? <laughs> That's okay. Thank you. It's our pleasure to serve you. Uh, could I get my bank card back? Uh, <laughs> won't come out. Thank you. It's our pleasure to serve you. Uh, my bank card, please. Thank you. It's our pleasure to serve you. Mr. Milk Ellington, I need my bank card. This ATM is out of order. Please see one of our bank specialists bank during card. business hours. Well, Rick, I understand that Ben Willis will be spending his summer vacation there in Ashtabula to take in some of the great sights there while he's waiting to get his card back. And now a word from one of our Jack and Rick sponsors. Men, are your finger knuckles getting too hairy with unsightly knuckle hair? Are you tired of ugly razor stubble on your toe knuckles? Are your porcelain hummels growing hair too? Then drive out to Ben's Knuckle and Knickknack Shaving Nook, Route 42, Exit 9, and take the right turn just past the gorilla cage at the James K. Polk Zoo. That's Ben's Knuckle and Knickknack Shaving Nook, Route 42, just past the gorilla cage. And now we turn to the story of one family's continuing battle with toxic sludge. The Gathering Goo. Grandma, Grandma, Bucky's fallen into the burning tar pit again. Land sakes, where you kids never stop roughhousing. But Grandma, he's going under. I don't think he can breathe. Oh, you boys, with your fooling around, it serves you right. But he's being burned to a crisp, Grandma. Oh, Lord, you young ones nowadays. All you think about is your own breathing. Why, in my day, we smoked 20 packs of Marlboro cigarettes a day and never <coughs> coughed twice about it. Jimbo, what's that I hear about Bucky? Dad! Bucky's fallen into the burning tar pit out by the town dump. It's a festering heap of toxic sludge and noxious gases. I told you kids never to play at the town dump. If you must jump into a burning tar pit, use the private tar pit, not the public tar pit where just anyone can play. All right, put a leash on old Yeller and let's head out to the pit. A leash? But, but old Yeller is a canary. Son. You know that, I know that, but for God's sake, don't let old Yella know that. It'd kill him. Will Bucky be saved? Will Grandma run out of her stash of peach brandy? Will old Yeller be able to mate with Jinx, the next-door neighbor's Irish setter? Tune in next week for The Gathering Goop. Well, Rick, it looks like the old clock on the wall says it's time to go. Hey, it's time to go! So this is Jack. And this is Rick. In the land of the blind. The one-eyed is king. And you've been listening to our special Bob and Ray birthday celebration with our Bob and Ray-like tribute segment, especially written for Arts Express by myself. It featured Rick Tooman all the way from Dallas, Texas, and your correspondent. 
This is Jack Shalom for Arts Express with host Prairie Miller. on the show with Arts Express Paris correspondent Professor Dennis Brough reading an excerpt from the third novel in his noir trilogy The Precinct with the Golden Arm. This is Broke on the Global Literary Beat, Breaking Glass. Today's episode features my novel, The Precinct with the Golden Arm. This is the third novel in Calamitous Corruption, the Harry Palmer L.A. trilogy, and this one, set in 1949 in Babylon, L.A., is about the LAPD, Big Pharma, and the Mexican-American, currently gentrifying community of Boyle Heights. In this chapter, Harry, an ex-cop, is on the trail of a potentially corrupt officer who also may be in cahoots with what is becoming in 1949 a new-look Ku Klux Klan. He's just been given by a Mexican policewoman a tip of some suspicious doings by the cop Higgins. I resolved to tail him and find out what he was up to. No easy feat to track a professional who often made his living following others. I had to be careful. The first thing was to disguise myself in my car. He knew me, and though he didn't know what I drove, the piece of junk I put on the highway was very noticeable, so I decided to rent a car for this exercise. The most popular car at the moment was the Ford Tudor sedan, way too big for me alone, but likely to confuse anyone suspecting a tale because so many were on the road. It was easy to rent one since they were all over the lot. Then I needed to disguise myself in case Higgins picked me up behind him. I almost always wore gray suits and a mauve tie or a brown trench coat, sometimes with a matching fedora. Instead, I wore an open white shirt with a white Panama hat that I pulled down almost over my eyes. He might pick up that I was behind him, but he wouldn't be able to tell who I was. I swung by the station that evening. I thought he would be off by seven or so, I guessed correctly. Higgins in plain clothes, blue shirt and slacks, which almost made him look human, came out of the station and went around the corner to his car a gray Pontiac sedan that looked recent. He was going in style. I wondered where the money to buy this was coming from on his sergeant's salary. We headed east, Higgins and I, first through some towns with Spanish names and mixed populations, Almonte, Covina, Pomona, but then gradually through towns to where only whites need apply as we moved into the Inland Empire through San Bernardino County and then dipped sharply into Big Bear Valley. Finally, after almost an hour, we stopped in Fontana, a town of white picket fences, white houses, white businesses, and streets entirely populated by white residents. It seemed like everyone was packing into a car, with the kids especially jamming the main drag with roadsters. We drove past Angel's Court, and then Higgins pulled into a parking lot near Valley Forge Court. Very patriotic, I noted. The lot was nearly full. He drove right to the front, where a few bases were left, and pulled his outsized vehicle into what amounted to two spaces. I watched him get out and saunter to the edge of the parking space. He walked across the lawn and went down the steps of a church into its basement. He didn't seem to be a particularly religious man, so my suspicions were aroused. I had to get in there. In my white attire, which I thought was perfect for this town, I approached the church. Outside were a few men, probably in their 40s or older, smoking and hesitating before going in. They looked at me with suspicion, but when I asked if I was on time for the meeting, they seemed to relax. I watched at the bottom of the stairs as each man, and they were all men, entered with what looked like a secret handshake, which was just fingers connected, a hand on top and bottom, and finishing by bumping fists. If that was all that was needed to enter, this must be the dumbest secret society that ever existed. Inside, my impression was confirmed. 
hanging from the rafters, were three banners, a U.S. flag, a Confederate flag, and a flag with a burning cross. A podium with a few men seated behind stood on a raised platform in the front. Higgins sat in the front row. I took a seat in the back. A speaker was approaching the podium when a shuffle occurred in the back entrance. Two men in white hoods were attempting to gain access. The speaker, over a microphone, ordered them to remove the hoods and take their place inside. He seemed somewhat embarrassed and agitated at having to enforce the no sheets, no hoods dress code. The speaker introduced himself, not by name, but as the Imperial Wizard. Besides the fancy name, he seemed very modern in white shirt and tan slacks and looking very relaxed at the podium. Welcome, he said, to the new clan, Sans Hoods and Robes. Our organization has been outlawed by the California Attorney General, but we're still here. Only now, we're not so obvious. Some groans of discontent rose from the audience of predominantly balding and semi-balding white men, who apparently were still yearning for the good old days, which were neither good nor old. The clan had been very active in the year after the war, particularly in Los Angeles attempting especially to keep Negro residents in their place. If any Negro had tried to move into a white area, they would find a burning cross on their lawn soon after they arrived. The same went for Jews, where at USC, a Jewish fraternity found a cross burning on their lawn. And the harassment didn't stop with warnings. Just before I quit the force, the brother of a man who challenged a restrictive covenant was found beaten unconscious in an alley. We survived because we have the support of the community in our work. The police investigated us and said our actions were nothing more than childish pranks. Even the mayor of L.A. defended our work, telling the un-American NAACP, with that dreaded name, everyone booed, that we can't investigate people just because they're prejudiced, since you people are prejudiced against the Klan. In all the time since our organization has been declared illegal, not a single arrest has been made. Everyone cheered. Higgins raised his fist and joined in the lusty yell. Nevertheless, we're looking to work in a different way now, trying to use city councilmen and civic leaders to get what we want and to keep Negroes in their place. They're already talking about discontinuing the L.A. red streetcars, which carry the Negroes to their jobs in the factories, and they're being pushed into Watts, where we hope they stay. More cheers. So we're making real progress in maintaining the color line, which is better for both us and them. I'd heard this rationale before on the force, how keeping all others except the white Anglo race down and in substandard housing and jobs was actually doing them a favor, and they should be grateful for it. It was the kind of twisted logic that only those on top could come up with. Tonight, though, we're not here to talk about the Negro threat to our homes and our homeland, but rather another grave threat, which we will have to contend with, and that's the Mexican menace. Let's get those wetbacks, somebody yelled. But the wizard, in his imperial graciousness, waved off the demand, smiled, and went on. Can you imagine, he said, the white race being overrun by a class of people of the mentality of the Mexicans? For a long time, we thought they were just lazy and stupid and never posed a threat. But now we realize they formed into gangs, and they can be vicious and treacherous. We're afraid that if they continue to come over the border and fill up Los Angeles with their large families that keep getting larger and then move out from there, we could have a race problem in California that will dwarf the Negro problem in the South. Worst of all, it's when the Mexicans mix with Jews, with Negroes, with Japanese, and even with some Irish and Italians, all being led by the communists in an attack on our way of life. Cries of, down with the pinkos, our fearless leader continued. I'm speaking about Boyle Heights in L.A., perhaps the most dangerous community in America. It's like Ellis Island West, filled with all kinds of dirty refugees. They all live together in the same public housing complexes, a communist plot if ever there was one, and something must be done. But, he said, we're the new clan, and instead of burning crosses, we're working in a different way, and the city and the state are supporting us. The first thing is the banks are refusing loans to any of these residents who try to leave the Heights and the other Mexican neighborhoods of East L.A. The last thing we need is these people out here. So we're working with financial institutions to help identify potential borrowers from those communities. The crowd didn't know what to make of this. They seemed as a group to be much in favor of burning crosses and beating up people, little accustomed to the finer points of segregation. But then the whiz gave them all something to cheer about. The other project in which we're working with the state is in dividing the neighborhood by running state highways through it, which will serve a twofold purpose. His imperial majesty was starting to sound like a city planner himself. First, 
by claiming land from the community to build these new freeways and dividing them up so you won't be able to walk more than a few blocks without encountering an underpass. Then, because some of us work in L.A. or go in on our off hours, the freeways will allow us to drive straight through and over these wretched lands without ever having to see anyone living in them. More cheers. The men, many of them overweight, cheered again. Some of them bounced their bellies. I'd been in a lot of scary situations, but none with this combination of horror and ridiculousness. We still have to be vigilant because by rights we are outlawed, and we need to make sure that we have our hands on the pulse of the city police and the sheriff's office. To that end, I would like to introduce our man on the force, Sam Chase. Who should then rise but Higgins, who spoke from the audience in front of the podium with the wizard above him cheering him on. I joined the auxiliary police, he, Chase, said, to keep an eye on what goes on in the force. But I need some of you to help me. I'm going to go through the audience and point out a couple of you who I'm asking to volunteer to train to be auxiliary police, just like junior G-men, and help me keep tabs. When the meeting broke up, eager volunteers swarmed Higgins. I made lickety split for the exit. Higgins was up to something all right. I didn't know quite what, but I was more than shocked at the way the Klan was working with and probably infiltrating banks, state planning offices, and the police. Why burn a cross when you can refuse a loan? Why attack neighborhoods when you can segment and divide them? And why fear the police when you're part of them? This is Bro on the Global Literary Beat with my novel, The Precinct with the Golden Arm. Thank you, Dennis Bro. And that's all we have time for today on Arts Express, Expression in the Arts. And if you'd like to express yourself too, you can write to us at theradiogoddess at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Prairie Miller leaving the station.